thank you for listening, but please be advised that I don't just believe shit I hear on podcasts, and I truly hope you don't either. Use scientific skepticism to confirm information for yourself. If you find that I was wrong about something, the best thing you could do for me is to let me know. You can do that at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware of the fact that I do swear, and I don't bleep anything out. So listener discretion is advised. This is episode 95 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science and skepticism, environment and wildlife, and stuff I find interesting or important that I want to learn more about. Today we have all the segments. I talk about why the sound of freedom is actually doing harm to those actually trying to help victims of child trafficking, the feedback loop being caused by the slowing of our ocean currents, some interesting mutations that determine dogs from wolves, kids tossing baby birds off of cliffs in Iceland, and the New York Nazi rally of 1939, and how it compares to what MEGA and other Republicans are doing today. If you've joined me before, then thank you for returning. I really do appreciate you. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. And if you're interested in supporting the show, all the possible ways are listed after the final segment and thank yous. If you have anyone in your life speaking positively about the Sound of Freedom movie, please listen and don't let them get away with supporting such damaging material. This time it's not just about me being angry about dumbasses spreading propaganda. Experts who actually spent decades of their lives doing the actual real work with actual victims of child sexual abuse and trafficking say that this depiction of the issue is going to do harm. But let's go back for a second. A person named Timothy Ballard founded an organization called Operation Underground Railroad, an organization he left after having allegations raised against him. He and the organization were often criticized and even condemned for their lack of financial transparency, something real organizations of this sort have. He makes claims of having broken up child sexual abuse rings. He claims to have rescued thousands of child trafficking victims. And you know how those brainwashed Republicans eat that shit up, right? They just accept it without ever being shown any evidence. He knows this is a trigger issue and that it's one of those issues that gets conservatives naively reaching for their wallets. And he took advantage of that. He is a fraud. But they keep sending money to him, as well as his old organization. I don't see why I'm surprised. They keep sending money for Trump's legal fund, too, and they think he's a fucking millionaire. Anyway, Timothy Ballard discovered a meal ticket among the seething, radicalized Republicans who believe science and medicine are radical left agendas. So he made a movie that Rolling Stone called a QAnon-tinged thriller, and Republicans funded the movie and supported the false fears he raised to further their agenda. The ideas that make up this movie are all taken from QAnon. As much as they try to argue that the movie has nothing to do with conspiracy theories, just watch the movie, then visit a QAnon site, and it's pretty fucking clear. It's all from the QAnon cult of conspiracies. 
This movie, which was endorsed by Mel Gibson, by the way, manipulates the reality of child trafficking. And according to experts, it's damaging to the real fight. One expert told Rolling Stone that by focusing on the conspiracy theories, the movie was crippling their ability to address the real problems. There are anti-trafficking organizations. They are amazing. They have tons of amazing people working to help these victims. This fraud and his movie have them all very concerned about the misleading depiction of the industry. Anti-trafficking experts who we should be listening to when it comes to saving our children say that QAnon and its stupid, mindless, made-up theories has greatly hindered their actual efforts to actually deal with real-life victims and the issues that got them there. And there are real issues that we could be dealing with instead of sending money to grifters who claim to be saving thousands of children. The anti-trafficking experts say that the movie is revolving around baseless panic, completely obscuring the reality of it when we should be putting light on the reality of it. It's the truth that needs to get out there because there is a problem. 600,000 humans, half of the minors, are trafficked every year. A representative from the National Children's Alliance explained to Rolling Stone how the depictions in this movie could actually discourage child victims from recognizing that they are being trafficked by depicting a rare, unusual form of trafficking and implying that what they're portraying is the norm. It's not. It's literally the type of child trafficking that happens the least. Again, these Republican supporters don't care about facts. They buy into this movie as being an accurate depiction, which the experts say it is not. The movie does not even address the main victims of child trafficking, nor the main causes of trafficking. None of it. Yet Republicans are touting him as a hero. So what do the experts say about the actual issues that's in opposition to the movie and Timothy Ballard? The people who have spent their lives dedicated to this shit all agree. The great majority of trafficked youth are trafficked by someone they know. The great majority of children groomed are groomed by someone they trust. The great majority of victims are generally much older than what is shown in the movie. And when children are trafficked, it is most often by their own parents, usually parents with substance abuse issues. But some parents are just bad people. 70% of victims are 15 to 17 years old. 70%. Not the prepubescence shown in the movie. The most at risk are older teens. They end up these victims because of poverty or because their parents are bigots and they're LGBT. These are the children being trafficked. These are the children who need to be protected. And actual anti-trafficking organizations have actual suggestions that could actually bring those numbers down. Treatment plans for drug addiction, social safety nets for families in poverty, support for LGBT and gender non-conforming education, and the youth who were kicked out of their homes. The movie never even addresses prevention of any kind. All it does is ask for donations in the end, so he can continue his supposed good work. The beauty pageant scams and the multiple scenes of children being taken in broad daylight from public places, that's just not a real everyday thing. Putting focus on these Republican fear tactics is just going to keep huge masses of people ignorant to the realities, which keeps people at risk. There's a reason people like Fabian Marta were major financiers of the movie. It helps to keep the eyes off of them 
Fabian Marta having actually been arrested and charged by St. Louis Metropolitan Police with child kidnapping, grooming of women and girls of all ages, and holding sugar baby sugar daddy parties. This is an example of one of the largest funders of this movie. In reality, according to the experts, we fight child trafficking by fighting poverty, homophobia, transphobia, and domestic abuse. It really could be that simple if people really cared. Can we please start paying more attention to the experts than the grifter conservatives asking for money? Can we please start being more skeptical, damn it? There are steady currents at the bottom of the ocean, almost like a flowing river within the ocean itself. They have traveled the same path, about three centimeters per second, for millennia. These currents are no small bit of the ocean. They make up 40% of its volume, which is a lot. I saw them compared to giant conveyor belts. They play an important part in transporting heat, oxygen, carbon, and nutrients all around the planet. So the fact that climate change is causing them to slow could be a big problem. Some of the issues with the slowing or changing of these currents, which have stayed on track for a thousand years, are the effects on our food security and the impacts on weather patterns, sea levels, and marine ecosystems. And worse of all, it will permanently affect the ocean's ability to absorb carbon dioxide, something we are depending on the ocean for more than ever these days. And an unfortunate feedback loop has been discovered through a research study which has experts the most concerned. A team of Australian scientists have issued a warning, and their work can be checked in the scientific journal Nature. With the feedback loop, things just get worse and worse. In this case, the slowing of the ocean bottom currents accelerates climate change, which slows the currents, which further accelerates climate change, which further slows the currents, which further accelerates climate change, which further slows the currents, which further accelerates climate change, which further slows the currents, which further slows Everyone hears about survival of the fittest. Those who actually understand evolution get that isn't exactly correct, but whatever. That's not the point of this segment. You may have heard of survival of the fittest, but have you ever heard of survival of the friendliest? That could be how we got our beloved dogs. Some really interesting work has been done and is continuing to be done on the differences between dogs and wolves and how dogs broke off from the pack. Brian Hare is an author, evolutionary biologist, and professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University. He has spent 25 years studying animal evolution with a bit of a focus on wolves and dogs. He explains how we were chosen by some wolves about 20,000 years ago. They were smart, so when it became easier to wait for human encampments to discard scraps than to hunt, they stayed near the humans. Those that stayed with the humans became somewhat domesticated and evolved a bit differently over time, until they were no longer related to the wolves in the wild at all. Dogs born today have an innate ability to understand what a human is trying to communicate. Wolves do not. Pointing was used as an example in a podcast I listened to on the topic. A dog pup will follow the direction of a pointed finger without any training. A wolf pup will not catch on to this. Dog pups today also really want to be with people. They are attracted to humans right from the start. I learned a new word when looking into this. It's called xenophilic. The dogs born today are apparently naturally xenophilic, the opposite of xenophobic. Wolf pups, on the other hand, will not be attracted to people and have no desire to be around humans, even after spending the first few months of their life with them. When we go deeper and start looking at the different genes of wolves and dogs, we get even more information. Dogs have a hotspot of mutations which have been discovered to lead to their over-friendly behavior. And 
This apparently has an interesting correlation with human genes. Have you heard of, or do you know someone with Williams syndrome? It's garnered the nickname cocktail party syndrome. People with this syndrome are unusually outgoing and friendly. It turns out that the location of the friendliness mutations in dogs corresponds with the same genes that when missing in a human cause the rare condition Williams syndrome. There are some other interesting gene correlations between humans and dogs that I should do a segment about someday as well, such as the ears. Dogs with certain types of ears share a gene with people born deaf or something like that. It's wild shit. I can't wait to read more into that and share. Anyway, our dogs are the result of the survival of the friendliest of wolves. Those that were curious and friendly stayed by humans and they evolved together, side by side. Well, the dogs we had up to Victorian times anyway. There was very little variation among dogs until that time. Then we started doing purposeful breeding, and from those pre-Victorian age dogs came Great Danes and Wiener Dogs and everything in between. In 1939, the majority of people in the United States were disgusted by the thought of Nazism. But there was a large number of citizens who were, in fact, sympathetic to the Nazi stances of white supremacy and anti-Semitism. Their main organization was the German-American Bund, a group of anti-American, anti-democratic assholes who bonded over hate and violence. Sound familiar? At that time, they were out in the open and even had youth training camps in New Jersey, upstate New York, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. The German-American Bund held a giant, highly anti-Semitic Nazi rally in 1939 at New York's Madison Square Garden. This date was no accident, as it's George Washington's birthday. And on display at this rally was a 30-foot portrait of George Washington with swastikas on either side of him. The people in the crowd wore Nazi armbands. The guards in the aisles wore uniforms that were almost identical to those worn by Nazi Germany. The audience was giving the Nazi salute. Over 20,000 men, women, and children were in attendance, and the behavior on display was not unlike what we're seeing from mega assholes today. The comparisons of stuff that went on at this rally and Republican gatherings today go on and on and on. It really is frightening if you know what you're looking at. They touted it as a pro-America rally and made up claims about the founding fathers to match their Nazi agenda. They proclaimed that Washington was America's first fascist and that the Founding Fathers really wanted the equivalent of a Nazi regime. Just like the Christian nationalists today keep trying to say that the Founding Fathers never intended for a separation of church and state, they just change the reality of history to fit what they want. It's fucking ridiculous that anyone ever falls for it, but they do. At this Nazi rally in 1939, they hollered about the Jews taking all the jobs. Today, Republicans holler about immigrants taking all the jobs. It wasn't true then, and it's not true now, folks. At this Nazi rally, they hollered about the Jewish-controlled press. Today, Republicans holler about the liberal-controlled press. Again, not true then, not true now. They're against free press because it exposes their lies. At this rally, they hollered about taking their country back from the Jews. Since 2016, it's been take back the country from the libs, though they have used many scapegoats to get their bases riled up against so they're distracted from the actual policies being laid out on the floor. Muslims, gun restrictions, gay people, gun restrictions, immigrants, gun restrictions, trans people, gun restrictions, drag queens, gun restrictions. Every fear has been baseless, but they all worked to radicalize normally decent people into fucking monsters. 
The speaker at this rally hollered about anything or anyone they didn't care for, anyone who didn't agree with them, being in the pocket of the Jews. Today, Republicans say anything and anyone they don't care for or don't agree with are in the pocket of the crooked libs. The group itself, admittedly a Nazi group and proud of it, claimed to be the real American patriots. Also very much like Republicans today. Also very much like the Nazi party of Germany called themselves the real German patriots. And every other crooked regime called themselves the real patriots of the country they were destroying. The rally opened up with Speaker Fritz Kuhn, head of the German-American Bund, attacking the press with sarcasm and humor. How familiar does that sound? And that's why everyone should have seen this coming. The signs were there at Trump's very first press conference. From that point on, other than Fox News and a few far-right Christian shows, the right has followed suit. One of the most known and recognized signs of a leader or party which intends to go fascist. And half the world fucking missed it. That speaker, by the way, the head of the Bund, was indicted later that year on embezzlement charges. And that little tidbit is no surprise to anyone with common sense. Because we're all supposed to know by now that the Nazis are never the honest ones. A major part of these regimes is suppression of the people and what they know. They are not the good guys. The only difference is that the Republicans haven't fully publicly embraced the label yet. They are fitting it in just about every way, and some of them have slipped up and talked about how previous known fascist leaders had it right in their minds. Then there's Project 2025. It puts the steps of a fascist regime right there in Republican plans. They just have to reach the point where they admit it and take on that Nazi label, and they would be the same people as those at the rally in 1939. Thousands of protesters made up of anti-Nazi groups as well as veterans and housewives did show up to voice their outrage at the 1939 rally. The protesters, interestingly enough, were supported by an orchestra from a nearby Broadway musical who came and performed a rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner for them, which is kind of cool. Now, my question to you would be, how many of you knew about this rally in the 30s before it started to become relevant again? I hadn't been aware of it before 2015. That's because it was considered to be a frightening and embarrassing event. It wasn't something that people in the United States talked about as much as it should be. It wasn't taught in history class. The ideals of this event were the very same ideals that the country went to war against. It just wasn't something they wanted to have out in the public eye. While it was filmed, there doesn't seem to be a solid beginning to end peace out there. When filmmaker Marshall Curry first heard about the event, he became very curious as to why this was new information to him. How is this not known about by everybody? Then somewhere along the line, he found out that it had been filmed and so sought the help of an archival researcher to find out if any of this film still existed. They had some success, but not surprisingly, most of it is lost to time. Film in 1939 wasn't made to last the way digital does today. The physical medium often eroded over time or became brittle if not stored in proper conditions. I began at my company when film was still being used for print and prepress, and we had all sorts of environmental controls in different parts of the plant because of it. And that's 60 years after the Nazi film is from. It's amazing any of it survived, really. They did manage to trace down clips and archives at several places, such as the National Archives and the archives at UCLA. Once they felt they had found all they could, Curry gathered the footage and started putting it together. It started as more of a personal project until the Unite the Right rally at Charlottesville. After seeing Nazis chanting, Jews will not replace us, and the President of the United States refusing to condemn those Nazis, the idea of getting this out for people to see started to feel urgent to him. 
That's when he decided to reach out to a contact he had at Field of Vision to see if they'd be interested in supporting the film. And they were on board. And so the short documentary called A Night at the Garden was released. It was only seven minutes long, but made an impression and was nominated for the 2019 Academy Award for Best Documentary Short. Two of the most disturbing scenes take place at the same time. Well, if you discount the portrait of George Washington surrounded by swastikas, I guess. A 26-year-old Brooklyn man named Isidore Greenbaum ran on stage in protest. He was beaten on that stage, his pants ripped off of him, and he was thrown off into the crowd. As he was being violently beaten on stage, the audience cheered, laughed, and applauded. The second thing going on while this man was being beaten, which is incredibly disturbing, is a shot of a little boy in the crowd. This child, as he sees a man begin to be beat by other men, is rubbing his hands together in a way that the filmmaker describes as giddy with excitement, and you can see it there on the kid's face. That is a child who will grow up to be evil, a child who will grow up to love violence. Those are the kinds of people who attend these rallies, and they are raising the most vile of children. Just a quick note, the man who was beaten, Isidore Greenbaum, joined the Navy and fought the Nazis in the 40s, so hero. When the filmmaker was interviewed about his work, he made the comment that these American Nazis were using the symbols of America to sell an ideology that a few years later, hundreds of thousands of Americans would die fighting against. But one comment he made sat eerily with me. Quote, 20,000 New Yorkers who loved their kids and were probably nice to their neighbors came home from work that day, dressed up in suits and skirts, and went out to cheer and laugh and sing as a speaker dehumanized people who would be murdered by the millions in the next few years. Unquote. I personally would love a world where this film is shown in every high school history class in every free nation. Many don't realize that before the war, the Nazi groups in the U.S. were totally out. It was determined at the time that free speech protections meant that they had to be allowed to have their say. Then the war happened, and the entire country was officially at war with the entire Nazi ideal. This is when it became absolutely unacceptable to be a Nazi sympathizer, and all of the fascist groups were discredited and disbanded. And oh my God, if only it would have stayed that way. But in 2016, the President of the United States refused to condemn those who shouted, Jews will not replace us, at the Charlottesville rally, and the days of them hiding were over. They tested the waters, and the President said, come on in. And now here we are, back in 1939, but made so much worse with the social media of today. If I had one wish in life, even if it cost me the rest of my own life, it would be that it becomes difficult to be a Nazi again, not just here, but worldwide. Unfortunately, it appears the world is going back into a dark ages, and I fear for those truly free and educated nations because they're small and there's nothing a Nazi regime loves more than forcing more people under their control. In Iceland, there's a small island called Hemje. On that island are the Hemerin Cliffs. And for about a month every year, for almost as long as there's been electricity on the island, people gather at this location to watch children of the town toss adorable little pufflings off a cliff. Sounds kind of dark for a positive segment, right? But it's actually pretty amazing. Now, if you're for some reason not familiar with what a puffin is, please Google it at your safest convenience. They're adorable. The pufflings being tossed off the cliff are baby puffins. 
Puffins are different from other birds when it comes to the density of their bones. Instead of light and airy for ease of flight, they're dense and heavy for ease of diving. Thanks to these denser bones, they can dive down up to 200 feet. This same benefit, however, also makes it more difficult for them to fly. When on the water, they use it as a kind of runway. Or when they're in their colonies, they launch themselves off of cliffs, and this way they can catch an updraft. But when a baby finds themselves on hard ground, they're too weak to get flight going. Puffins mate for life, and they only produce one egg per year per couple maximum. Some years couples will not produce at all. These partners will completely separate while away at sea, but will always find each other during mating season when they come back to the island. Almost a million come back around March, dig a burrow out of some grassy cliffs, and lay a single egg in each. If you're in the area at the time, you'll see skies and waters full of parent puffins gathering food for their young. When the babies are ready to wander out of the nest, the great majority of the parents have already hightailed it out of there, migrating away for the winter. This will occur in late August or September. Similar to baby turtles, pufflings will first come out after dark, and they follow the light of the moon to the water. Once they reach the water, they're set, as they're magnificent swimmers and will pretty much travel the world for their first few years before returning to the island to breed. Also similar to baby turtles, pufflings can be distracted by man-made lighting. This is how all those baby pufflings end up going inland instead of out to sea, and they end up in the towns on the island. Their dense bones and young bodies can't take flight, and they're put at serious risk of predators, starvation, or even ending up in traffic and hit by a car. Helping these pufflings get out to sea where they belong is an annual tradition beloved by the children. While all ages participate, the kids are definitely the most into it. They get to stay up late and go out with flashlights searching for pufflings. The misguided babies like to crouch into tight spots, so the kids look under cars and behind bins and even inside equipment, anywhere one might be hiding for the night. It's totally an after-dark adventure, which I know my kids would have loved when they were young. The entire town participates, including the police, but the kids catch more than everyone every year, often with the help of their parents, however. Once caught, they're boxed and brought to the cliffs, where the children take them out and launch them into the air. They spread their wings and glide themselves down to the water, where they can finally begin their lives. And that's why people gather at the Hammer and Cliffs every year to watch children toss adorable pufflings off the edge. Pufflings are long-lived, 25 to 36 years, but their populations have gone down by half in some places over the last 20 years. They are now listed as endangered in Europe by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. So what this town has taken on, generation after generation, is not just a fun activity, but very good conservation work as well. And that's all I've got for you all today. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube for short weekly skeptical videos. Thanks for joining me. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. My eternal gratitude goes out to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project going on four years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And of course, thanks to the Palmer household. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 96 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player. Or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. 
The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, YouTube, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter and Hive. There's also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. 